and we're in the Word of God. How many of you know that faith comes by hearing the Word of God? Now, if faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and it's impossible to please God without faith, then what ought we to be building ourselves up in? Our faith. Because faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Let me tell you something, folks. You don't think faith up. You don't conjure faith up. You don't contrive faith. You build faith up. And you do it by hearing the Word of God. So we're going through the book of Genesis, and uh, God's been blessing it. And tonight we're going to look at, we're going to finish up looking at the fall of mankind. Next week we're going to be in what I'm going to call All in the Family. We're going to see All in the Family and uh, what happened to the family of Adam and Eve. We're going to start tracking uh, the family of man down through Genesis. It's really good stuff. Don't miss it. And um, tonight, let's just look at Genesis 3. And by the way, bring somebody Sunday. Sunday, we were almost totally and completely full. We're growing. God is blessing. How many of you were here Sunday and were blessed? Amen. We had a lot of our regulars gone, and we were still almost completely full. So God is really uh, growing us, and we appreciate that of him. We're thankful to him. And uh, God's hand is with us. I'm seeking him. How many of you are seeking him? All right, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read a few verses. And they heard the sound of the Lord God. The word sound there actually in Hebrew is voice. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, let's say it together, where are you? How many of you have ever heard God asking that of you? Where are you? All right, verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God replied, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Everybody say, here goes the blame game. It goes all the way back. Now look at verse 13. The woman picked up the cue, and here's what she said. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, uh, or, uh, uh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's his fault. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and I want you to notice, he didn't waste any time with the serpent. He didn't ask the serpent, what did you do? He knew he was guilty. Now God begins to pronounce sentences. So let's look at what he said. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, On your belly you shall go, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or conflict or warfare between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you've got a pen, you need to circle verse 15, because that is the first pronouncement of the coming Messiah in the Bible. That's the first prediction of the coming Redeemer in the Bible. Now God goes from the serpent to the woman. Verse 16, to the woman he said, 
I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Every woman in here that's had children who knows God keeps his word, say amen. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He goes from the woman now to the man, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Eve means life or living. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take forth also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Final verse. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, woe is me, because that's what we just read, a bunch of woes. <laughs> All right, now, let me just skip through the rest of this chapter, and let, let's go over uh, the last of this, um, what the concept, I'm calling this tonight, Curses and Consequences. Curses and Consequences. There is a price for sin. Adam and Eve have sinned. We shared last week that the entire creation was subjected to futility um, when they fell. We talked about not just man, not just humankind, but the entire creation, the animal kingdom. Uh, even, we're going to see tonight, the ground was cursed because of sin. Futility means that God subjected his creation to the principle, the cycle, the futile, frustrating cycle of death and decay. Everything around us is decaying and dying, and that's because of sin. Death was never a part of God's plan. God did not want us to experience death. He did not want creation to experience death. If Adam had never sinned, are you ready? Adam would have never died. Eve would have never died. Their children would have never died. They had immortality until sin entered the human race. And with sin came death. Not just to us, though, but we read last week from Romans chapter 8, where it says the entire creation is groaning. As a matter of fact, the Greek says that the entire creation is groaning and, in essence, standing on tiptoe, waiting expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. The creation itself is experiencing birth pangs. Here comes another hurricane. Look at all the turmoil in our world. Hurricanes, earthquakes, all of the weather patterns that are so uh, tempestuous and difficult right now. The, the earth is experiencing birth pangs. And Jesus Christ himself said that they would grow closer and closer together 
until finally it culminates in the return of Christ. And when he sets in his new kingdom, the millennial kingdom, then even creation will be delivered from futility, from the endless cycle of death and decay, and will be delivered into the liberty of the sons of God. So, folks, a better day is coming. And it will come when God turns to the sun and says, go get your bride. The trumpet will blow. And the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be caught up into glory. This world will go through a season of tribulation. And then the Son of God is going to wrap it all up. Now we're going all the way back now to the beginning, the book of beginnings. We're seeing how this all began. Where did all the sin come from? All the crime, all the darkness, all the difficulty, all the turmoil, all the satanic activity. The door was open when Adam and Eve sinned. Now I find it interesting that in verses 8 to 9, God, they hear God's voice walking in the cool of the garden. What fellowship they had way back then. It's amazing. God would just walk up to them. They would talk to God before they fell. But now they have fallen. And for the very first time, God is having to ask where his creation is. Of course, he knew where they were, and he was making a point. I hear such a a plaintive cry in the voice of God here. God is saying, you've hurt me. I'm separated from you. Where are you? What's happened to you? Do you know what God's saying to our culture right now? He's saying to the whole world, where are you? I'm looking for you. He's the hound of heaven. He's ever hunting lost souls. Where are you? And of course, as we mentioned, here comes the original blame game. I want you to notice, God sat there while they did it, but not one thing they said got them out of their own individual responsibility. He says to Adam, where are you? He says, hey, you told me she was going to be a helpmeet for me. Well, thanks a lot, God, because the woman... You, he's blaming really two people here, the woman you gave me. If it wasn't for her and you, I wouldn't be in this trouble. So he says, she did it to me. The woman hears him copping out, and the woman blames the serpent. Now they're both thinking, is there any way we can get out of trouble blaming somebody else? And I want you to notice, Adam wasn't concerned about Eve, he was concerned about his own hide. Look at the immediate consequences of sin. Because he loved her perfectly before the fall, but now here he is willing to let her be judged to protect himself. I think of Paul's words, all seek their own. All seek their own. Fallen humankind is selfish by nature every time. God listens to Eve, and then... He turns immediately and begins to pass sentence. Now, it's very, very important what God said. I want you to notice, everybody had to bear their own responsibility. Let me tell you something, folks. You're never going to be healed from any sin in your life until you, until you fess up to what you did. You've got to fess up to what you did. In our culture right now, uh, and I could go into a lot of the reasons why I think this is true out there. I think Freudian psychology has done a lot of this to us. Freudian psychology taught us to blame mama, blame daddy, blame in-laws and outlaws and all kinds of other people for our problems. 
Freudian psychology has taught us professionally and sophisticatedly to pass the buck. But let me tell you something. Notice, Adam was right. She did bring him the forbidden fruit, but his part was he ate of it. So he should have said, you know what, God? I did it. I did it. I did it. And until we can say, I did it, and here's what I did, we will never be healed. You, if you say, well, my dad was an alcoholic, my granddaddy was an alcoholic, my great-granddaddy was an alcoholic, my dad abused drugs, my dad this or that, my mom had a temper, my grandma had a temper, that's why I've got this temper. As long as you do that, you're back in the Garden of Eden. And God is not going to buy it. Because if you blow your stack, you may have had the influence of anger in your life, but guess what? You blew your stack. And you'll never be healed of anger until you say, I have an anger problem. I have an anger issue. I need you to heal me, Lord. God listens to it all. He wheels around to the serpent because he was the originator of the sin. He begins with the most sinful first and he says to the serpent you are cursed he begins to pronounce sentence and here's what he says about the serpent he's ever to be looked upon as now by the way two things were judged here not just the devil but the devil used a serpent he used a serpent to speak to the woman i don't know what it looked like but the bible says he used a serpent So not only did the devil get judged, but the serpent got judged. And notice, if something is used as a vessel for the devil, God not only judges the devil, but he judges the vessel. Folks, when people go to hell, when they are judged of the great white throne judgment, even though their bodies were used by the power of wickedness and evil in this life, and God will judge the sin, the Bible is very clear that the body is going to be cast into hell, and the body is going to feel pain in hell. And so the vessel that was used by the enemy will also be judged. Conversely, we are going to be judged as the body of Christ for how God used our bodies for righteousness. So that when you witness to people, when you pray, when you worship God, when good works by the power of Christ are done through your body, you're going to get a reward for it. And what are you going to get when Jesus comes back? A glorified, sickness-free, sin-free, weakness-free body. So it works both ways. So not only does God judge the devil, but he judges the serpent. What does he say? He is ever to be looked upon as vile and despicable. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Have you ever noticed how you don't have to teach people to be afraid of snakes? You know, I I was a critter kid. Growing up as a boy, I loved critters. I didn't have the natural aversion to snakes that most people do, or a lot of people do. But I've noticed, and we lived in East Texas for seven, eight years, and We lived on four acres of land, and I mean, there were snakes everywhere, and I used to go out and shoot snakes almost every day, but I did not have a dread fear of them, but I noticed anytime we had company, if there was a snake 100 yards away, they were in the nearest closet, 
there is a natural, how many of you admit it, you have a natural aversion to snakes? That's the vast majority here. Where does that come from? God said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. I'm going to make you to be a vile and despicable creature. And God did it. It's in us to not like snakes. And since he tempted the woman to eat what she shouldn't eat, God said, you're going to eat dust. Dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So God cursed the actual serpent. But then he turned to the one who used the serpent, Satan. And he began to pronounce judgment on him. And here's what he pronounced. And I want all of you to notice this. We're going to home in on verse 15. He said, destruction and ruin are coming to you by a redeemer. Folks, this is great news. This is the first prediction of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is the John 3.16. At least it's the John 3.16 of everybody who lived from this time up to Noah's flood. This was the John 3.16. Here's what he said. I will put enmity. As a matter of fact, I've got it here. Let's just read it together out loud, can we? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Everybody say with me, amazing. Because right here, way back in the book of beginnings now, this is the dawning of the gospel day. Right here. No sooner had the tragedy of sin taken place and hit the human race, but the hope of a redeemer was born when only two people were on the planet. Two people on the planet. Here they are. Now trust me, they know now, and they're about to know way worse what they have done. Because God has not yet pronounced the consequences on them. But they realize we've made a horrible mistake. And so as they're sinking, as they realize what they've done, the God of hope and the God of grace and the God of mercy gives them hope of a redeemer who's coming. And he tells us three crucial things. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's no doubt in my mind that this promise, verse 15 right here, that Adam is what Adam and Eve clung to in the pain of their consequences, and it's what every person of faith before the flood was saved by. When they believed this, they put their hope in this and their faith in this. This was all the gospel they had, but it was enough. Three things are given to us about Jesus Christ in this prophecy. First of all, he would be the seed of the woman. I want you to notice that when Luke goes through the genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and begot so-and-so, and so on and so forth, and so-and-so. The very last verse. Look how far back Luke traces Jesus Christ. He takes Jesus Christ all the way back to who? Read it with me. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he says, first of all, he's not going to come like some E.T. from another planet. 
He's not going to come like an angel. I'm going to send the Redeemer through a woman. Praise God. In this act, I believe, I want you to notice, you think Eve was not eating crow right about now? She was realizing, oh my gosh, I listened to the serpent, I shouldn't have. I took the fruit, I shouldn't have. I gave it to my husband, I shouldn't have. She didn't know everything that was about to come down on them. But she was feeling badly. I want you to notice God's grace is magnified in that she whom the devil deceived and who was first in the transgression would be instrumental in bringing forth the Redeemer. Look at Galatians 4 with me. Can you read it out loud with me? But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now why do you think Paul made a point of saying born of a woman? Because he was going all the way back here to Genesis where God said to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, I'm going to send a Redeemer, born of a woman. And it was like a vindication. I want you to say with me, God's merciful every time. And when you've been had, say, when I've been had by the devil, you can bet the mercy of God is already shining to vindicate you. Give the Lord a hand of praise. It's true. Now the second thing that we find out about Jesus Christ in verse 15 is his heel would be bruised. He said, he said, the devil is going to bruise the Redeemer's heel, but the Redeemer is going to bruise his head. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, the Word of God just blows me away. Because way back in Genesis, thousands of years before the New Testament, you've got a picture here of the cross. Because we know that on the cross, Jesus' heel was bruised. This is a a stunning, mind-blowing prediction of Jesus' death on the cross. We know that the stake was driven sideways through his heel so that not a bone in his body was broken because it was predicted by the prophet that not a bone would be broken. So the stake went in sideways through his heel. And here's God all the way back in Genesis saying the devil was going to bruise the Redeemer's heel. David the psalmist saw the same thing over a thousand years before Jesus came. Read Psalms 22, verse 16 with me. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. How anybody could stay lost when you see the word of God so accurate here? Because when David wrote that, there was no such thing as crucifixion. Not to mention when Moses, sitting under the starry night in the wilderness, carrying a million people to the promised land, sat down, was moved on by the Holy Ghost of God, and he wrote, the devil, Satan, is going to bruise the Redeemer's heel. You know, in the Psalms, you'll read a word a lot called selah. Selah means pause and calmly think about that. I want you to think with me for a minute. 
how true the Word is, how accurate the Word of God is. Because here we are, Moses. There's no crucifixion in Moses' day. There's no crucifixion in David's day. And Moses says, by the Holy Ghost, this is what God told the devil. The day is going to come when you're going to bruise his heel. You don't know how it's going to be done, but you're going to do it. But he's going to turn around and he's going to bruise your head. And he just penned it and left it there. And now, thousands of years later, we see the reality of the cross. Moses was looking forward to the cross. We look backward to the cross. But aren't you glad that Jesus did not deliver himself? Aren't you glad he submitted himself to his heel being bruised? Amen? The third thing we see in the prediction in verse 15 is Jesus' ultimate victory over the devil. Satan trampled and humiliated the woman, but the seed of the woman would come forth in the fullness of time to in turn trample and humiliate the devil. And Jesus did it. The bruising of the devil's head is talking about a death blow. You may bruise his heel, but he's going to deal a death blow to you. And he was humiliated. Let's look here at Colossians. Can you read Colossians with me? 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus made a public spectacle of the devil. How many of you are glad for that? Amen. And then, he's done. He's doomed. He is defeated. Now, he's alive out there. He's moving in our day. He's moving as much as he can because he knows that his time is short. But he's defeated. He's been defanged. Jesus took away the devil's three tools from him. Say with me, death, hell, and the grave. The grave can't hold you. Death can't keep you. And you're not going to go to hell if you put your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So he is defeated. Amen. And so, what is the final doom of the devil? Where is he headed? Revelations 20, verse 10. Let's read it together. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented forever and ever. Praise God. Let's give the Lord a hand one more time. That's good news. You know, I don't know what we're going to be aware of in heaven. I don't know what we're going to see or not see, but I'm going to tell you something. I would not mind witnessing the devil being grabbed by the scruff of the neck and hurled into hell by Jesus Christ because I hate the devil and he hates me. And newsflash, he hates you because you wear the blood of Christ, which undid him. And so that's why everywhere we go and with everything we do, we reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only way to salvation. It's the only blood that saves. It's the only blood that heals. It's the only blood that redeems. It's the only blood that delivers. It's the only blood that answers God's demands for justice. And it's the only blood that will escort us from here to there when Jesus blows the trumpet. Amen. Praise God.
Well, I guarantee you the devil was reeling after that. I guarantee you the devil was reeling after he had these things spoken to him. Then God turns to the woman. Everybody say to me, bad day at the office for Eve. He turns to the woman. Here's what God says. I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Matthew Henry in his commentary writes these words. Every pang and every groan of the travailing woman speak aloud the fatal consequences of sin. But I'm glad to say that even with that, God still mixed it with joy because Jesus said in John 16, verse 21, let's read it together. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Say with me, that's the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And so here is God saying, yeah, you're going to have pain, but I'm going to give you such joy in childbirth. When you hold that child, you're going to forget it. Thank God for his mercy. Then he turns and he says, your subjection shall be to your husband. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, that's an interesting little phrase there, and I wondered about that one. What he's actually saying is, you're going to be subject to your husband. Now, let me explain this as best I can without getting into trouble. Eve was given to Adam as a helpmeet. Let's remember now, when God was watching Adam name all the creatures, and he was all alone as a human being in God's creation, God noticed it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a what? Help me for him. So, in the original creation, when God created Eve, he gave her to Adam as a helpmeet, and subjection to him was God's original blueprint. Now, if you have a problem with that, don't take it up with the messenger Read the Bible. It's right there. I'm going to tell you something, folks. In our day, we have been so polluted by the demonic doctrine of feminism. And I don't mean equal pay for equal job. I'm all for that. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the undermining of the male and his position of authority in the home. And you know what? Men have opened that door because they haven't led they haven't prayed with their wives. They haven't led their families. They have done their own thing. They have, they have reneged their responsibility. And because of that, let me tell you what happened. Women grew to resent it. They grew to resent him not leading. They grew to resent him not being the spiritual head. They grew to resent it. And the, the devil got in and began to not just equal pay for equal task was only the door opener. It was not the real issue of feminism. The real issue of feminism is the undermining of the male. You, you name a popular sitcom to me. Name a popular sitcom in the last five years that has not made the male look like a bumbling idiot and the woman look like the one that had all the sense. Now, I'm the first to say, Kathy has more sense than me. She has more common sense than me. She's a better Christian than me. Uh, and I can say that because Billy Graham said that about Ruth, and I thought that was right. And it's true. But she has more common sense than me. On the way here, 
She's, have you called so-and-so? Have you called so-and-so? Did you call so-and-so? Finally, I said, Kathy, I'm going to make the calls. But then I had to remind myself, this is what I would not do if she wasn't there. Nobody would get called. Yeah. The undermining of the male authority is what feminism is all about. And let me tell you something, folks. When Eve listened to the serpent, opened her mind up to him, and did his bidding, she was stepping out from under the authority of Adam, and she did her own thing. And it's almost the first foreshadowing of feminism in the whole Bible. Male authority, female submission has nothing to do with value because the woman has as much value as the man, vice versa. It has to do with God's calling and God's placement and God's divine order. That's simple. That's simple. And so... It was the reversal of this divinely established order that led to the fall. So God, now that Adam and Eve's natures were altered through the fall, had to command them to do what would have come naturally. Matthew Henry again says, If the woman had not sinned, she would always have obeyed with humility and meekness. And the man, if he had not sinned, would always have ruled with wisdom and love. But the fall made God's original design to be a heavy yoke. Instead of doing it naturally, God had to come along and say, Now, Eve, you're going to have to submit. And Adam, you're going to have to rule with wisdom and love. Because we were altered, folks. We were altered. When Adam and Eve fell, look at it. It's there immediately. He's blaming her. She's blaming the devil. Immediately, their character was altered. And when it came to their interpersonal relationship, it was immediately altered. Did you know that so many of the things the Word of God asks you and I to do is really just telling us to do what God's original plan was? He never intended for us to hate people. He never intended us to hold grudges. He never intended for us to lust. He never intended for us to have self-control problems. He never intended for us to die. He never intended for us to have arguments. He never intended for there to be relationship barriers. He never intended for us to be independent. Even Adam was to be totally submitted to God. If I understand the New Testament correctly, even though the woman is to be submissive to the man's leadership, the man is also to submit to the woman in love. In, in all kinds of ways, I submit to Kathy. If she tells me something, I put it right next to God in this respect. I better listen to what she says. Because if she tells me a warning, or she says something to me that is advice, I listen hard. Because nobody's going to care about me like her. And if God's going to speak to somebody, he's going to speak to her about me. Okay? So I'll submit to it. I'll submit. I'm happy most of the time. 
I'm not going to lie to you. To submit. And I'm trying to learn that her strengths are not my strengths. And so I need her strengths. And she needs mine. That's a good place to say amen, Kathy. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But see, when Adam and Eve fell, folks, it all went askew. It all went crazy. So all God's telling Eve to do is what his original plan was. But now, see, something in her doesn't want to. So he's having to tell her to. And Adam, that's why God says to the men in the New Testament, love your wives. Why would he have to say that? Because fallen nature distances itself from the wife. Fallen nature is selfish. So God has got to tell us the things that ought to be natural. Everybody here? It sure is quiet in here. I know it's 8 o'clock. Don't get clock-eyed on me. We're about to finish. And now we come to the man's judgment. We're going to finish. The man's judgment, the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed. As mentioned last week, all of creation was affected by the fall. Even the ground was subjected to vanity. Several parts of it were made no longer serviceable to man's comfort and happiness as they were designed to be. Read Genesis 1, 9 through 12 over again. God blessed the land. He parted the waters from the land and then caused the land to be fruitful and multiply. And now the very God who one chapter before was commanding the ground to be fruitful and multiply is cursing it because of sin. The second thing that happened to man, his judgment, his consequences, his business became a toil to him. God said in verse 19, in the sweat of your brow, he had never sweated in work until the fall. In the sweat of your brow, you're going to work, Adam. Watch this, everybody. It's amazing, but this is true. In the beginning, the garden was dressed without any uneasy labor. It was kept without any uneasy care. But now his labor shall be wearisome and sweat shall accompany his work. And that was not God's original plan. Third thing God did. His food was changed. Verse 18. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. What was Adam eating before that? The beautiful fruit of the Garden of Eden. But now because of the fall, God says, now you're going to eat of the herbs of the field. So what he was able to eat. Now, folks, I don't know this. I have to think of this. Because he ate the wrong thing, God reminded him by making him eat the herbs of the field constantly, this is what you did. And I want you to remember what you did. Now you're going to eat the herbs of the field. Because now the garden is cut off from you. His life is cut short. That's the fourth thing. Verse 19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the first mention of death in the whole Bible. Now he's telling him, Adam, you're no longer immortal. You're going to return to the dirt that you came from. At the conclusion of the sentencing, God provided one more hint of the coming Redeemer, and I'm going to close with this. Verse 21, I think I got it here. Yeah, let's look at this. Look at verse 21. Also, for Adam and his wife, 
The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now listen to me carefully, everybody. God's a good God. Were these harsh judgments, consequences? Yes. But look at this now. Verse 15, he gave them something to put faith in. He gave them a hope. Out of your seed, Eve, someday a Redeemer is coming. If you put your faith in that promise, you were saved. But now, it says they covered themselves, their nakedness, with vegetation. And what did God do? God shed blood, and he covered them with animal skin. Here's what God was saying. Sin will never be covered by anything but blood. There's going to have to be the shedding of blood. So, I'm giving you a picture. Your sin is going to be covered by the shedding of blood. This is why when Cain and Abel, it says that that Cain brought God an offering that was vegetative, vegetable. And Abel brought him an offering of a slain animal. And God accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's. Why? Because he was telling him, telling them, didn't you catch the lesson I told your parents? I covered them by the shedding of blood. I don't want vegetables. I don't want your way. I want my way. And my way is the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. So already, way back here, God is pointing down a tunnel of time to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? So let's stand together, can we? You know, I just, I'm so moved. I'm so thankful for Jesus and for the blood. Folks, let me tell you something. We'd be so lost without the blood. Where would we be without the blood? Abysmally lost. Aren't you glad that today... The blood of the Lamb of God has been shed for us so that right now we can lift our hands and thank Him and have fellowship with Him. So can we just take advantage of that blood now and let's lift our hands for a moment and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the shedding of blood. Thank you, Lord, that way back in the Garden of Eden you were pointing to the day. that Jesus would come and spill his blood for us. Thank you, Lord, that all the way back there, you already knew you were going to send a Redeemer whose heel would be bruised. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing. Thank you for fellowship with the Father because of the blood through the Holy Spirit. Can you just take a minute and just thank the Lord in your own private way for what he's done for us? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.